To find brighter light, we must head for the gloomiest caves. To understand ourselves, we must turn to the strange. To find the way out of our troubles, we must embrace them with fonder reverence and to thrive, to live. We must come to the thinnest places where life and death aren't opposites, but rather bedfellows. Those are the words of Bio Akomolafe. He is my guest today, and he is a globally acclaimed lecturer, speaker, and proud diaper changer, a.k.a. he's a dad. Uh, And he considers his most sacred work to be learning how to be with his daughter, son, and his wife. Bio was born to Yoruba parents in western Nigeria. After losing his diplomat father to a sudden heart complication, he became a reclusive teenager seeking to get to the heart of the matter as a response to his painful loss. He sought to apply himself to the extremes of his social conditioning, his faith, and his eventual training as a clinical psychologist, graduating summa cum laude from Covenant University in Nigeria. Largely nurtured and trained in a world that increasingly fell short of his deepest desires for justice, Bio's doctoral research involved meeting with traditional healers as a part of his quest to understand trauma, mental well-being, and healing in new ways. He has taught around the world, including at Harvard, Simon Fraser University, Middlebury College, Sonoma State, Schumacher College, and many others. His adopted home is in Chennai, India, where the occasional whiff of cow dung dancing in the air is another invitation to explore the vitality of a world that is never still and is always surprising. So today, Bio and I are going to get into a number of different topics. You know, we we generally discuss the current times that we find ourselves in. Uh, we we discuss how to face crisis, the importance of rituals, and the function that rituals tend to play within culture and society. We talk about what we miss when those rituals are gone, and we apply those things to everyday life. So you know, how can we begin to? Uh, deploy certain rituals, aka habits, aka traditions, within our lives more effectively. So this is a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, he brings his background uh, as someone that grew up steeped within Nigerian culture, and it's a, a fresh look, a sort of different take on the role and the significance, not only of rituals within our lives, but how they form the very foundation of our relationships and how without them, our intimate relationships specifically can begin to fall apart. So this is one of my favorite conversations. I hope that you really enjoy it. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Bio Akomalafe. All right, Bio, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? Good, brother. You? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Yeah, I have I have a lot to celebrate. I have a three-month-old boy that we brought Whoa. into the world not too long ago, and so I've, I've been busy. <laughs> been will busy. be. Yeah. You will be. Yeah. Other? You yes. Know? Yeah. So, Just your first? Yeah, it's my first, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. What? A- no sleepy nights for you. No. Gone. <laughs> yeah, I gone. Every, yeah. Every night's a different night, but he's starting to sleep well, which is good, but... Yeah. Well, listen, you know, I, there's lots that I would like to dig into with with yeah. you and many things that I'd like to discuss and get your perspective on. So let's dive in 
And let's begin with the question that I ask everyone, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Let me first say that recently my daughter asked me a question. She said, what's your favorite color? And that was quickly followed by what's your favorite animal and what's your favorite this or that. It might be a consequence of being an adult that I don't have favorites, right? I don't have readily articulable, you know, best friends, you know, things that stand out, you know, that way. Like, and maybe it's maybe it's part part being bored or something else. But but when I hear this question about the most one of the most defining moments in my life, I struggle because there have been plenty. Yes, there have been plenty. And in a sense, because of my cosmological leanings, those moments are still unraveling, mm. right? Even though I I'm able to contain them with language and say, this is the moment, Connor. This is when it happened for me. Lightning strike, you know, from the skies and and an apple falling from the trees. And this is when everything stood out for me with clarity. Those moments are still opening up for me. So I just want to premise whatever I have to say with that. But I might just, you know, for the sake of conversation, and since we're low level celebrating the birth of your child, say that the moment that I became a father, which isn't quite done yet, it's not a stamp. You don't earn it. It's a gift. And, and sometimes this gift isn't yours to wield. Becoming a father may have started the first time I heard Alethea, my daughter, who's now seven and will be eight in a few weeks, when she cried for the first time and I heard her cry. Just this strong voice coming from behind the door. And I knew, oh my goodness, this this is everything. It, this changes everything. It was like a black hole with its, you know, with its gaping mouth, sucking in everything, entangling everything, disrupting and querying everything. Everything I stood for, everything I thought I stood for, everything I looked forward to just collapsed into this cosmic singularity. And yet I resist saying that I became a father then. It wasn't just a biological thing. I'm still becoming father. And so very quickly to respond to your question, even though I've taken one hour already, <laughs> the defining moments in my life, the most defining or one of the most significant is still ongoing, still becoming with it. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective because I think that those, you know, we often look at these moments as a singularity and we miss out on the unfolding of the narrative that, or the wake that continues to pervade through our life. And that's kind of a little bit of what I wanted to talk about. You know, I, you know, I wanted to talk about the times that we're in. I want to talk about stories. I'd like to talk about cultural myths and rituals. So there's, there's much that I'd like to dig into, but let's start with this idea of, of stories. And you talk about how stories have consequences. And I think, you know, in many ways we can see this if we just look in our relationships, you know, as an example, many people hold stories about the other person, about the relationship, about themselves within the context of the relationship that may not be true, but may cause damage, you know, may create separation. And after having worked with a lot of couples and, you know, listened to many people talk about their relationships, oftentimes the narratives that they hold are the 
thing getting in the way of the thing that they're seeking, right? Intimacy, closeness, connection, et cetera. So what are the consequences that stories have and what role would you say that they play within our lives, our development, our capacity to engage with one another in the world? Well, stories are, there's this research, you know, I think it's highly theoretical, just entangling memory with anticipation, almost like, you know, the past and the future, just one thick curdling soup of temporality. That is how we remember is already implicated in how we see and visualize what is yet to come. And how we visualize what is yet to come also plays with the things that are uh, supposedly passed and done with, or helps us sieve out, you know, and approach that complexity. And I mention that because I feel stories are anticipatory frameworks. They're performative anticipatory frameworks. They're the ways we orient ourselves in a world that is material, but also semiotic, also deeply infused with meaning, right? And it's not just meaning that we impose upon it. It's meaning that we are pressured or compelled by the structures we find ourselves in and the structures we also co-create, you know, to navigate. So stories help us frame the next. Stories help us language what is possible. As you've said, you know, this is not only important within intimate relationships, it's important at a societal level. I just had a conversation, primetime Nigerian television, I'm Nigerian, and just spoke about some of the stories. Nigeria is, to put it mildly, going through a rough patch at this moment. Just security issues, casual violence in some quarters, herder, farmer conflicts, most of these things instigated by climate, you know, shifts. And I just had a conversation about how it seems most African countries, Nigeria being the largest, are still tethered to the narrative of progress. We still see ourselves as existing within a spectrum that has been defined by Western supremacy by the global nation-state order, um, our fight for independence, you know, still left us with a flag, the national flag, and the furniture and the apparatus of our colonial masters. And so we're still, in a way that invites us to think about, you know, trauma, not just as a personological issue, or not even as a collective human issue, but also as a territorial issue right? Almost atmospheric and volatile. Like trauma can take on architectural forms and be encoded in the ways we lay our streets, in the ways we story health and well-being and education. And these things keep us in a toxic loop of repeatability. We're so stuck in in this narrative of progress that what we know how to do right now to address chaos, climate chaos, poverty, you know, these terms already accepted, is to dream of becoming the next superpower, mm-hmm. is to provide conditions for a superstar like Akon to dream of a city that will duplicate Marvel Cinematic Universe's 
notion of Wakanda, right? The way we repeat the familiar is traumatic. And there's a story in there that we're not good enough until we have phallic steel towers, until we have cars in abundance. So to cut the story short, story is is part of how the world materializes, Mm. part of how the world shows up itself. It is not everything, and it is not the prism through which the real, you know, becomes real, but it is speciated. It is part of how the real materializes and how matter is always broken open to become more than it is. Mm. Uh, Beautiful. Thank, Thank you for that. I think the way that you articulated that is not only poetic, but quite clear in many ways. I think story has often been the purveyor of our experience, not the experience itself, but the vehicle through which we try and have someone else understand our unique individual experience, even though there's a collective understanding that experiences are, are similar in some ways, although being mm-hmm. being sort of filtered through an individual lens. Yeah. And what's interesting is I remember reading a book, I think it was by Yuval Harari, and Blank in the title, he wrote Homo Deus, and I can't remember what the the original one was, which is very, very popular right now. I'm blanking. I'm sure that people listening to this are saying it. Sapiens. Sapiens. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And and I think it's in Sapiens or Homo Deus, one of the books, he talks about how the the next war will be the war for intersubjective reality, the, Mm -hmm. the the spatial or temporal realm of story. And that narrative is becoming, always has been a very powerful force. Narrative is becoming the, the sort of ground of, of where we are fighting, of where we are warring. And that feels very true. I mean, if you look at the West, for example, and I'm not too sure if this is happening as much in India or in Africa, but if you look at the West as an example, certainly there is a vying for power through the means of trying to control the narrative, of trying to control the stories. You know, those who control the stories control the masses. So I'm wondering if you can just speak to that. Do you feel like that's true? How do we sort of, you know, safeguard, if possible, ourselves against that? Or is that even a worthy cause? I'm curious to get your your take on this. I know it's a very large, somewhat existential question. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's quite in my alley. I don't think it's all about story. Let me put it that way. Yes, you know, like we've said, and we've re- reinforced in our conversation that story matters. But I think, you know, to repeat the glorious sentence of Karen Barad in her book, um, Meeting the Universe Halfway, I think we've given language and as, you know, by consequence, as a consequence, story, too much power to the effect of diminishing the role that a world, that the world exceeds story. This might be, but let me address that, that, that question that Yuval poses about a, an intersubjective war. And I think that framing helps us think about, you know, uh, brings us to the realm of story. It helps us think that we ought to be thinking about the ways we ought to be seeing our scene, right? That there are other forces beyond just the business as usual that are at work. And like you say, he who controls the story 
controls the masses. But it is also true that stories do not sprout unbidden. You know, they, they don't they don't emerge out of thin air. This is not ex nihilo. Stories are secreted by bodies in much the same way bodies are secreted by stories, right? This is how we hold the tension of a material hyphen semiotic universe, a universe that is also always storied, but always material at, as well. I've been reading a lot about the the radically, the radically unappreciated contributions of our gut microbiome, mm-hmm. and and because my son is you know on the on the spectrum. Prior to us meeting our son, we didn't. I didn't know or give much attention to food. Right? I come from a culture that eats oil and doesn't care as long as it goes in through my mouth. I'm not saying we don't have standards, right? Of course we do. But, but I didn't grow up in a family that, you know, was that health conscious. But now I'm forced to, you know, to, to see what am I missing? Maybe I should reintroduce lactobacillus ruteri into my gut microbiome and see how it changes things. And I mentioned microbiota and those communities in our gut, not just because psychologists and sociologists and theorists, critical theorists are beginning to think about how the gut is a second brain, mm-hmm. right? But because we're now faced with a with fact, very compelling fact that the stories we tell and how we experience the world might actually be the instigations of these critters living in our guts, right? These supposedly dead mute, well, not dead, obviously, but mute and not sentient beings living within us, that we're radical becomings and that if we divorce story from its materiality, we lose sight of the ways that the world is also engineering us and engineering the stories we tell. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's exclusively intersubjective. That is, I think, a form of anthropocentricity. It limits the world and its materiality and its ongoingness to you and I and the conversations and the discourses and the stories we tell. What that leaves out and occludes is the pressing, compelling materiality of a world that exceeds story and yet is the condition for story. So I I, I understand the framing of intersubjective wars and the quest for story, but I also would introduce that cautionary seed and plant it in our conversation that that there's something else, especially in a time like this, brother, when we're in a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think about all the stories we have. And then this little creature came into the picture and upturned economies and upturned everything and upset everything. And there you go. So, yeah. (laughs) No, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. And I mean, it, as you were talking, it reminded me Terence McKenna, he once talked about yeah. how language is a technology. Yes. It's a technology that is largely unfinished and it's ever evolving and it evolves with us as, you know, as we, as we continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhat points to the limitation you haven't, I think the average person, and maybe this is just my perspective, but I think the average person hasn't put a lot of emphasis onto language 
etymology, mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. it's understanding the technology itself and how to actually utilize it. And so mm-hmm. there's there is a form of manipulation that can be implemented because the average person is just sort of shut off from it. Appreciate you bringing in the microbiomes. I recently had a gentleman named Dr. Zach Bush on, who's one of the leading researchers and and purveyors of that conversation. Uh-huh. I'm I'm curious just to go into the second part of the question is how do we begin to potentially interact with stories in more generative fashion, knowing where we are at. Or maybe maybe we should talk about is where do you feel that we are at? You know, you talked recently about how times are urgent. Uh, maybe let's go there first and then circle back around this question. So okay. what's the time that we're living in? Why are things urgent from your perspective? What does that what does that mean to you? I'll frame it this way that a couple of years ago, I was invited to this conference in, where was it? Scotland. Hmm. And it was, it was about framing a new story. It was, it was called The New Story. And I was there with my friends, you know, Manish Jain, notably Charles Eisenstein, my amigos. And we just, you know, went there, did our thing. And I was really into this, you know, idea that we are in the space between stories, that this is where we are at the moment, that the stories that have been the condition of all the problems that we are able to identify, capitalism, late-stage capitalism, patriarchy, ageism, racism, sexism, all the isms, you know, that those stories are dying. The power of the nation-state hollowing out, you know, the story of separation, as Charles would call it, is, is dwindling, is dying away. And so we are in a stage where we need to create a new story. So we're in this, we're in this, uh, shall I call it a moratorium, uh, near neutral ground, where job is to create the next. And I've actually been to more events beyond that, where there's this dedicated, intentional effort to frame what new world might look like. I remember being in Berlin and facilitators in this group setting, after I'd done a speech, drew a line on a whiteboard or some paper and drew all the things that are bad, you know, on the left side and invited people to think about what they would like to see on the right side, right? So people put equality and and whatever, abundance, happiness on the other side. And I got up and I put a question mark on the line, (laughs) on the line that had been drawn. And without a word said, I went back to my seat. It was a bit controversial, but I think the point that I was making was I was now beginning to realize, wait, are we in the space within stories? I mean, between stories. Hmm. What does it mean to frame things as the space between stories? One, that framing, you know, there's there's a hidden codicil. There, there's something quite subtle and nuanced about framing the times we're in as the space between stories. It's, it's a way of saying it's left to us to frame the next story. And by virtue of that framing, we're saying we are at the center of how the world comes to materialize. We are staple matters or aspects of transformation. Without us, tree falling in the forest will not make a sound, you know, using that old psychologist fable. You know, it, it's, it's, it's us again. 
there at the center. So there, there is, there are stories striking and repeating themselves, as masquerading as the new, right? Uh, whereas there, there are just it's just errancy that is orthodoxy, you know, pretending to be errancy, mm. right? So this is. I wonder if it's if maybe it it is not more helpful to think about a space within stories instead of between. Now this is another subtle shift. It's not then about us creating a new story, you know, and it's not about stories being this boundaried, stable, stoic, independent artifacts, narrative and linguistic artifacts. But to notice that the world is fluid and um, fluent and complex in ways that invite the term, you know, that I've been playing with for some time, ontofugitivity. Ontofugitivity, that is the idea that even the, the master's plantation spills away beyond its technology, mm. that nothing stays the same quite long enough, you know, to exert the kinds of effects that we expect them to exert. So what I'm trying to say, and I'm not, I know this is getting sweaty and convoluted and <laughs> rhizomatic, brother, what I want to say is that looking for, I'm looking for political moves that take us away from the chit chat and the discursive bubbles that we're trapped in. I'm looking for shock. I'm looking for discontinuity. I'm looking for cracks, mm. right? Instead of just the the uh, the unbothered you know anthropocentric stream of human agency that oh this story isn't working let's use another story there's something quite you know <laughs> ptolemaic about that what i'm looking for is a break in transmission something that's that that shocks us you know to use the uh, uh, gilles deleuze's words that to think is to lose our way to think is to become otherwise, right? And 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 we are we're you know in our efforts to create a new story, we might be repeating the same dynamics, you know, in the name of innovation. So where we are, I think, at the risk of you know giving it an epochal or age-like name or category, is I think we're in the age of the gasp, mm. <laughs> right? Where words are no longer enough and where we are met by something that exceeds language. And now we have to mumble and, and feel our way through the dark. And that's where fugitivity begins. Yeah, well, well said. Thank you. Thank you so much for that perspective and the, and the manner in which you laid it out and feel there is this sort of transitory space that we've entered into collectively. And I think it's felt, you know, I think people feel the entrance into that transitory space and it's uncomfortable because yeah. we are so used to not conformity, but we're used to having some, at least within our generation and the generations past, some sense of continuity and concreteness within the direction that we're moving in. And suddenly we've had some experiences collectively as a species that has yeah. thrown us for a loop and suddenly woken us up to the fact that like, Maybe maybe we're not moving in the direction that that we should be. There's you know there's the threat of gain of function research popping up, and people are finally starting to talk about it as a very real Wuhan 
yeah, is a very real problem. It's like, well, if we have gain of function research that's unchecked, untethered from from people's understanding of what's taking place, and that's maybe one of the largest threats that people don't even know about. How do we deal with that? And so we'd love for you to speak to that transitory space that we that we do find ourselves in. Find myself left with nothing but a sort of how-to question, which feels very yeah, very instrumental. <laughs> but I think is the language that people speak. It's like, well, what do we do? How do we navigate that? Right? We we are creatures of action, and and so I'm curious to just get your your take and, and direction on that. There's a word that some of your listeners might be aware of. I think most people who are listening who are in the academic world and understand the fanciful ways that language is coined. The word is uh, cripistemology. Cripistemology is, you could cripple epistemology. That is, it, it considers the way, the ways that knowing is different when you're different, right? In, in a sense that, that knowing is not just this steady stream that flows, which we are in within, swimming within or outside of, you know, it's, it's shaped differently. And it also considers the ways that being disabled is not a function of the body in question, but a function of cybernetic networks, mm. right? Patterns, social assumptions, political preferences, you know, geological shifts, how bodies become disabled and therefore how other bodies become abled, large epistemological, you know, matters. So, for instance, my son, you know, one might look at my son and say, oh, he's having a meltdown, mm. right? That situates the problem within my son. It says it's his brain that is something is wrong with. So let's fix him. And me, as a psychologist, that's what I was trained to do, to fix people and get them back into the stream of being, right? What that doesn't account for is the way that we have framed, and by we, I don't mean just human beings, but a thicker we, how um, it has been framed. Bodies that are able and bodies that are disabled, to cut the long story short, matters that exceed the bodies in question. I bring up cripistemology because I think that we are constantly engaging in cripistemologies that to be settled, to be a body, is to use and borrow other bodies hmm. as technologies, right? We're, we are right now composite beings and we are using, in a sense, we are using microbiota, we're using, you know, bacteria and microbes and and things, you know, to exist. We literally have to colonize the world in particular ways to exist. If you were to take that out, we would lose a part of ourselves. So they're not just living within us. They are our bodies, right? I want to think about transitions, you know, in this very material, visceral, corporeal way. That what we're going through now is... We are, we have been disabled by cracks, you know, by openings mm. in the world. And this is real, you know, by, by, we've been rendered disabled. And so we need new kinds of bodies to get along. We need new kinds of thoughts and concepts to live. 
um, in India when the pandemic hit. I'm sure, say, Connor, where do you live in the United States? Yeah, I'm in originally from Canada, but I'm in New York right now. Oh, Canada. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure, it affected you. Maybe not as much as it affected us here in India, but it was like this ex- nuclear explosion that rippled out. Of course, its effects were not democratically felt, but some felt it more than others. But what it made possible were new questions, new thinking. Parents were now capable of asking a question, which was probably impossible before, only available to a few others. Why do we send our kids to school? <laughs> you know, why do we, why do we go to work again? What's the, what's the, do you know, do you have the memo on that? You know, why do we go to work? What's the idea? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to take the transport, transportation and go to, you know, everything now became, it was like we were desensitized and now sensitized again. Like something came into the room. My, my theories constantly emerging about how transformation takes place is a story, if you will, of cracks and fissures and fault lines and what they make possible. I think we're experiencing one at a very, very visceral collective level right now. And work uh, is twofold. One, we could risk salvation. And by salvation, I mean the reconstitution or reintroduction or reinscription of the familiar. That is Get vac- vaccines, close the crack, get back to normal. Connor, you're fine. Go to the shopping mall, do whatever you're doing before. Everything's fine and dandy. I think a lot of people want that. You know, I think I spoke at, I spoke at, a, at an event last night and that was the question. And several people asked me, how do we go back to normal? How do we go back? You know, what they wanted me to come in and talk about was getting, <laughs> getting back to normal. And I was like, no, normal's gone. Like normal's <laughs> off the table. You know, there is no going back to 2019. And even if you could, why would you want to do that? You know, like yeah. it's, it's not like it's not like there was a great level of coherence pre-pandemic, but mm. that, you know, that that seems to be that's the known, right? That's what we had known for so long. I think what I hear you saying is like the known has 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 been cracked. Right. There is that fissure or multiple fissures and tears through that known experience that we've collectively held. And now what? So please carry carry on. You're right. You know, the normal is the normal has never been homogeneous and all monolithic. Hmm. I think this is the apocalyptic gift of the pandemic is to make us see that. Not that it exists for us to see that, but one of its effects is that we notice that, that, oh, normal has never been quite normal. Normal has never been coherent or well put together. And and yes, you can say a lot about the new variants of the virus, right? Delta and Delta Plus now, Gamma, who knows? It's like everything we can throw at the virus, the virus is like, so guys, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do for this? Mm-hmm. Right? Let's, where's our vaccine? Where's our own technology to counteract? what these guys are trying to do. So yes, I agree, like normal is out. Um, And so, yes, there's one on one end, we want to get back to normal. I just want to be clear that there isn't a binary situation here. There are some aspects of the normal that I crave, right? Mm -hmm. Even, you know, we may feel, ah, yeah, we want the normal to be broken. We want it. But there are some aspects of it that I feel drawn to. And I want to get on the streets again. Last year, I didn't want to travel. Now, I'm actually looking forward to traveling, though 
I don't even know how to book a ticket anymore or tell my hosts to do so because it seems nothing. The jury is still out on what tomorrow might bring Mm. and nothing is as clear as it used to be. So there is the sense in which we want the normal, but there is a sense in which desire is impossible, right? You know that, you know that what you might call the impossibility of desire. It's like we want many things at once. Only some of the things we want become visible or clear to us. For instance, we might want justice. Some of us that want justice, racial justice, may not want to be in lockdown, but it might actually be a lockdown situation that reproduces or, I mean, produces the conditions for racial justice to be, you know, new thing, new and viable and fresh quality instead of this cyclical thing that we're constantly perennially engaged in. Um, So yeah, that's one end of it without creating a binary of goats and sheep. On one end, we want things to continue as they've always continued. And so we want to put vaccines out there, want to assure people it's safe to fly, um, But on the other end, I feel that transformation calls for failure, what I would call failure, or what I would call generative incapacitation, that every time something breaks open, there is an invitation in the air. And this invitation is a call to descend, especially in these times, is a call to to engage in cartographical projects, to map desire, to map the quality of these cracks. And I associate this intentional, but also pre-intentional study of cracks as blackness. This is what I call blackness. Blackness is not just this identitarian concept. And I know it might seem as if we've jumped gone, you know, we've jumped to a radically different topic, but we're still in the same boat. Blackness to me is not just this identitarian thing, this protest against white bodies. Blackness is the resistance or the refusal of stability. Mm. It's a counter-imperial more than human geological force that unsettles us, that is allied with tricksters and magic and extraterrestriality, <laughs> you might even say, <laughs> and the more than normal and the psychedelic. It's always looking for things to crack open. It's not a solution. It's a cartographical project. And I feel that we need a post-nationalist cartographical project that is about congregating us to sites of humble and modest failure, where we practice like the bodies that were transported across the Atlantic, the Yoruba people who became the candomblé artists in Afro-diasporic worlds in Brazil, in Cuba. You know, what the question that they contended with was, what do you do when home is stripped away from you? What do you do when the world no longer endorses your continuity? What do you do when you live day and night under the boots of your master. You go under, you find other places of power, you find other epistemologies. Blackness is the search for new disabilities, Mm. new disabilities. We need new corporeal disabilities and new fidelities with new kinds of beings. We need sanctuary projects that helps us think differently, taste differently, eat differently, you know, um, feel differently. But this is not entirely up to us and our story-making prowess. We must understand that we are not at the center of the room. In fact, that's what the pandemic invites us to notice. There are other beings that can lay claim to centrality. We're not the top dogs anymore. No, wonderful. Wonderful. That was was good. You just just started going and I was like, oh, he 
<laughs> he's yeah, into yeah, this. Yeah. He's got this. He's he's on a roll. <laughs> I know. I mean, I think what's interesting about what you brought up is uh, my framework is very much a Jungian framework, and he uh-huh. got he got very deep into alchemy. And in alchemy, they talk about the negredo, right? Blackening the decomposition Alfredo. periods, yeah. and you know, part of what I hear you saying is there's value that we've stripped mind the value out of those periods and life, the world, universe, God, et cetera, is sort of thrusting that upon us of like, hey, you, you have to remember that these periods of failure, these periods of decomposition, that moving into these spaces is incredibly important. So how do we awaken ourselves to exactly what you're saying? What might that look like for the individual to come more online or come more into contact with what you're talking about? I think that's a gift. It's a gift. It's not It's not a core competence, mm. right? <laughs> it's not something that you can go to a workshop and like, huh, now I get it. You know, I'm not trying to reduce or dismiss pedagogical effects, right? I mean, uh, this is the effect of story. You know, you can tell a story and awaken bodies, you know, to something different, to new frequencies. You can say and put words together that actually release people, mm. that, that makes organs shift. You know, these are the material effects of language. And, and I'm not entirely, you know, removed from that or those spaces. But, you know, it is not entirely pedagogical. It is not entirely what we do. Like I said, the mothers here will probably not have being able to frame questions about schooling and education and children and the awkwardness of children being at home when they ought to be productive in school, if not for a pandemic, mm-hmm. right? We, we 40,000 years ago, if the, what's it called, Adam's event, 42,000 years ago, if Adam's event, you know, with Aurora blistering and wounding the sky across the planet did not tear through the fabric of the normal, we probably will not have had the art that we have, you know, in cavernous subterranean places. We probably would not have had, you know, nation state, nation states, if in the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian societies, rather not Mediterranean, if the waters and the ice did not recede, right? Living space for farmlands and ways of cultivating you know, that were more than just communal and we're now open to larger, you know, forms of performance. So in other words, the stage is also an actor, right? The actor is not just on the stage. The stage is also acting, right? And we have to recognize that. So I would say that it's not entirely, it's not true that effects are universal. Some of us may be more bodily intimate, you know, maybe more intimate with the effects, the transformational effects of these times, which is the reason why there's always this minoritarian quest for high, hyper subjects to come under. You know, mm. Timothy Morton calls this time, we're in the time of the hypo subject, hypo, you know, to go under the, the beneath subject, that we can no longer uh, exist on the surface. We have to go to the depths, Jungian depths, if you will. Um so maybe that's, I think I've answered it severally already, um, that many bodies are closer to the Hiroshima bomb blast, right? <laughs> many bodies were closer to it, and some bodies were far away from it. Not all felt 
its immediate effects. But we all were touched by it. We all have carbon-14 in our cells. Um, so in a sense, the periodic messianic bursts of excessive, embarrassing reality calls some bodies and maybe not some other bodies. So if you're gifted with confusion, if you are feeling not at home with the politics of the moment, um, you probably have been touched by the carbon-14 of these moments mm. and you're being called to fail. This is our permission to fail. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. I think we'll, I think we'll just maybe pause there because I, there's more that I want to talk to you about. But I feel like anything else that we may get into will lead us down a, <laughs> a, path, a path that I'll, I'll certainly want another hour, hour's worth of your time to, to discuss. But, you know, this has been an honor and a treat. And I, I deeply respect your your perspective and, and just what you bring into this conversation, the story that you're telling and 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 that you are. So thank you so much. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? We'll have the links to it in the show notes, but where can people go immediately? Well, my site is bioacomalafe.net. It's been, it's been reformulated at this moment, um, but you can learn about me from there or emergesnetwork.org. And then if you type my name in Google or in YouTube, you, you might come across some video links that you know, might be helpful in learning about the things that I am privileged to do. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. For everyone that's out there listening, if you enjoyed this conversation and you know somebody who will enjoy digging into this, make sure that you share it with them. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thank you.